Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading uh, 2 Corinthians together this fall. It is uh, a letter that Paul wrote because the relationship that he had with the church that he founded in Corinth had taken a pretty bad hit. Uh, and so he has written this letter to deepen understanding and healing and restoration with his friends and to answer lingering, painful criticisms about his life and about his leadership. So we're going to read the last part of chapter 4 together this morning. Uh, I will read uh, verses uh, 13 through 18 of chapter 4. It's printed in your order of worship and you can follow along there. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would meet us, every one of us here this morning, and exactly the places where we are, and that you would use this word that we've read and that we've heard together that we're going to talk about for a few minutes, that you would use it to shine your grace on us again, that you'd meet those of us who feel uh, weak in faith and those of us who feel strong in faith, those of us uh, who don't have faith or who aren't sure, that you'd meet those of us who feel joy right now and happiness and contentment and those of us who feel sadness and longing and sorrow. Father, meet every one of us and show us your love for us in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, a few uh, years ago, we had a leak in our bathroom shower. Uh, It wasn't one of those really obvious leaks uh, where you can see the source. It was one of those uh, insidious hidden leaks that didn't act predictably and that was uh, hard to pin down. So at first, all that we knew was that every once in a while, um, some water would drain down through one of our kitchen cabinets onto the kitchen counter. So after a while of this, I became uh, convinced that this was happening because our shower needed recalk. There was some gap in there that water was getting through occasionally, and so I recalked it, and I was super happy with myself because it was a relatively easy fix and it didn't cost the fortune. And then this began uh, a period of uh, unpleasantness in our home. Um, I was sure that I had fixed the leak, and Allison was sure that I had not. Um, And just to take all of the mystery out of it, as is usually the case, Allison was absolutely right. So the problem was that for the longest time, I could not see the water leaking again, even when people were showering. 
I don't know why that was exactly. Maybe it required a certain amount of time or a certain volume of water before it would start leaking, but I just never saw it. So Allison would tell me in exasperation that the shower leaked again and she had to clean it up again. And then I would run upstairs and run the shower and never see anything. So that weird circumstance, you know, along with uh, my reticence to really want to see the problem again, given that I had fixed it, um, led to a couple of weeks of uh, matrimonial tension. Uh, but then finally it became obvious even to me, you know, the, there was water damage, the cabinet was flaking and peeling. So a plumber came, he tore out the wall behind the back of the shower, and he fixed the leak. The leak was definitely there. <laughs> I just could not see it. And I probably didn't really want to see it because I thought that I had made it go away. But me not seeing it, me not wanting to see it was completely irrelevant. That did not make it any less real or any less consequential or any less meaningful in my life. And I think that this is something like what Paul is saying to his friends and saying to us in that part of the letter that we just read together. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Church, part of learning how to live faithfully and, and wisely in this world is figuring out how to see past the end of our noses. It's about learning how to practice the presence of very real and very consequential things that are right now impossible for us to see. You know, the stuff of life that we can see, the stuff of life that we can taste and that we can handle is not all, those, all of the stuff that there is in life. I mean, I know that with my head. You probably know that with your head too. But living like that's true is not easy. And so this part of the letter is an invitation for people like us to reorient ourselves to the unseen things that are, as Paul says, eternal things. So we need to remember where we are for a minute. We have uh, discovered as we've been reading this letter together that Paul's credibility uh, as a leader is being called into question by some folks at the church in Corinth. These accusers of Paul's had come to Corinth with tons of street cred. They had come backed by wealthy patrons and powerful patrons. They'd come with letters of recommendation, the right one from all of the right people, and it was impressive. These accusers were skilled public speakers. They had been trained in all of the latest forms of popular rhetoric, and they seemed to live lives that just kind of floated a little bit above everyone else's life. They were carefully cultivated influencers, and Paul was just Paul. He worked a side job. He wasn't good at public speaking. He came back by nobody. And worst of all, he lived a life of suffering. He got beat up everywhere he went. He spent way too much time locked up in the clink. And sometimes he looked like he was barely holding it together struck down and afflicted and perplexed. And so in response, Paul, in all through this letter, has been laying down a really simple line of defense. This is, this is what Paul has said in, in a lot of different ways over and over again. You guys have got it all wrong. 
our suffering and our weakness and our trouble does not disqualify us from anything. In fact, our suffering and our trouble and our weakness are actually the places where the grace and glory of God are seen most clearly in this world. Those are the places, our suffering, our weakness, and our trouble, those are the places in our lives where the lingering fragrance of Jesus' life is actually apprehended. He was struck down and he was afflicted for the life of the world. And out of that defeat, God worked creation and resurrection and new life. So what Paul's been saying is that when we endure faithfully in suffering, in our trouble, in our weakness, then we are eloquent witnesses to God's love and to God's saving power. Like uh, Paul summarized this all last week in this beautiful line that we read together, we are always carrying about in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our bodies. And for Paul, this life, you know, this way of making his way through the world, this way of being as a human, is not something to be ashamed about. It's not something that you just talk about in quiet or you try to hide from people or plaster over and act like it isn't part of your life. For Paul, this way of being in life is something to celebrate. It's something to have joy in. And I think that's why in verses 13 and 14 in that passage that we just read that, that he quotes from Psalm 116. He says, we have the same spirit of faith as the one who wrote that psalm. Now we, we heard a bunch of Psalm 116 read as our Old Testament lesson, but I'm telling you, you should read all of it this afternoon. Just sit down and read Psalm 116 through from beginning to end. Because that's usually how it works when Paul alludes to the Old Testament or when he quotes from the Old Testament, he's not just talking about one word or phrase or one line. He's, he's evoking the whole story, the whole song, the whole mood. And the mood of Psalm 116, it is so jubilant. It's filled with joy. It says, I love the Lord because he's heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The snares of death encompassed me. I suffered distress and anguish. I was brought low, but he saved me. He delivered my soul from death. He delivered my eyes from tears. He delivered my feet from stumbling. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift the cup of salvation and call on the name of God. <laughs> it's a joyful, jubilant song of thanksgiving. The singer in that song raises a glass to God in thanks. And that's how Paul feels. That's how he feels about his raggedy, cross and resurrection-shaped life. He's thankful for it. And he wants his friends at that church to be thankful for it. And he wants us to be thankful for it too. Even in the midst of our suffering and our trouble and our weakness. And so Paul says in verse 15, this is all for your sake. The life that I lead, as inglorious as it might appear, and I know it looks pretty bad, <laughs> it's for you. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So that more people will raise their glass in thanks to God. Yeah, I suffer. Yeah, I look weak. That is all true. But I told you about Jesus and it changed your life by his grace. And then this is how it works. You, Corinth, you'll go tell other people about Jesus 
and their lives will be changed by grace too, and they'll be thankful, and they will lift that cup of salvation, and God will be glorified. So I want to say something about that last phrase there. It will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. (laughs) I know that that sounds like, you know, something that appears in the Bible, something an apostle would write. It's easy to rush past it. But I want you to know, church, that line for line, there is no, no person, no Greek writer from the ancient world, whether they're a pagan or a Christian, who talks more about thanksgiving than Paul does. Nobody talks about it as much as he does. It is a big deal to him. And he talks about it all of the time, and here's why. Because for Paul, when human beings give thanks to God, something that is very wrong at the heart of the universe is made right. When people like us, when any human being gives thanks to God, something broken at the heart of the universe is made right again. In, uh, in his letter to the Roman church, I know some of you are probably familiar with it, in the first chapter of that letter to Rome, Paul lays out what's wrong with the whole world. <laughs> he says, this is what's wrong with this whole place and all of us who are in it. And it may not be what you expect. This is what Paul says is wrong at the heart of the world. We knew God, but we did not honor him or give him thanks. That's what's wrong at the heart of the world. We were made to enjoy God and we were made to enjoy all that he has given us with lives of thankfulness and it is a tragedy when we don't. (laughs) And so church, that's why this moment, that's why this time together, that's why this worship that we do together every Sunday, every Sunday, that's why this is so incredibly important This is why it matters so much. I mean, yes, this worship together, it shapes us. Yes, it it forms us in very powerful ways. It changes us as people, and that's true, and it's really good, and we definitely need that. And yes, when we're together on Sundays, it allows us to be with one another, to see one another. It allows us to grow together in love and in knowledge. It allows us to grow together in service, and we definitely need that. That's huge. It's important for us. But in the end, our worship together, it's nothing less than our voices and our hearts and our minds united in thanks to God. That's what this is. We worship first, and we worship always for God. That's why every, every week that we get together, we, our worship builds to this moment where we come to this table that is called Eucharist. Do you know what that means? It means I give thanks. That's why every week we say something like this to each other. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then we say back, it is right to give him thanks and praise. Why do we say that? Because we were made to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. And when we do, something that is broken in us and something that is broken in the world is made a little more right. It is restored again. 
Church, it's no coincidence at all that when Jesus taught us how to pray, the very first thing he told us to pray is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The essential posture of prayer is the essential posture of the Christian life. It always begins with thankfulness and praise. We know God and so we honor him and we give him thanks. And I'll tell you one thing this means for us is that spoken words of gratitude, words that we speak in gratitude to God, you know, like around the meals that we eat all day, <laughs> or spoken words of gratitude for our work, for our relationships, for our families, or even for a beautiful day, these are not pious nothings. They're not just empty words that we say. They're not something that we ought to breeze past because they are little evidences that the world is being made right again by a God who gave his life for it. So let's be a people who build gratitude into the rhythm of our lives, who build thankfulness to God for who he is and what he has done into the rhythm of our lives because it makes the world right again. It makes us right again. So Paul says again in verse 16, we don't lose heart. <laughs> so we don't lose heart. Of course, nobody knows uh, exactly what Paul looked like. We have a couple descriptions from church history, but they're probably not right. But given the life that Paul had led, it wouldn't be surprising, would it, if he looked a little bit rough, probably a little bit past his years. I have a, a Rembrandt print in my office back there, um, St. Paul in prison. It shows Paul looking like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's got these care lines worn into his face, and he's got these really horribly red-tinted eyes. He's tired. <laughs> You know, who knows? Who knows if that's what he looked like? But that was Rembrandt's way of trying to capture how Paul talks right here. Our outer self is wasting away. <laughs> but, Paul says, our inner self, it's being renewed day by day. What Paul is talking about is something we've seen before in this letter already. Paul is talking about that slow change that happens in people who follow Jesus, where they, through the work of the Spirit, are made to look more and more like Jesus. As he said it back in chapter 3, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And church, this is where we come back to that idea of unseen things, because this, this right here, it's one of those unseen things. The Spirit comes and he goes where he pleases. That's what Jesus said in John 3. He's like the wind. Sometimes you hear it. Sometimes you see the trees shake, but these things are just evidences of the presence of something that we cannot see right now. I don't know how the Spirit changes us. I don't. I mean, I know our part in the process. We, we make use of the means of grace, the word and prayer and sacraments. We make use of those things. But I don't know. I don't know how the Spirit moves in and through those things. 
I don't know how he moves in and through whatever he wants to move in and through to change us. I don't know the spiritual dynamics of that because I can't see it. But I know for sure. I know for sure that he does. I know for sure that this work happens. I know that he slowly changes people who follow Jesus to make them look more like Jesus. And you know how I know it's true? Because I see it in all of you. I see it happening. Part of my vocation, one of the privileges of it, is I get to keep my eyes peeled for it, and I see it. Character and, and moral virtue and strength and wisdom and the fruit of the Spirit, I I see all of that stuff showing up in you. And if you look at the long arc of your life of faith, I think you will see it too. If if your life is like mine, it will not look like going from zero to 60 in 10 seconds. It will look more like going from zero to three miles an hour in 10 years. (laughs) A slow roll. But for sure, it's happening renewed day by day. So, we don't lose heart. And Paul follows this up with one of the most astonishing statements of Christian hope in the middle of suffering that any of us will ever hear. He says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Somehow, somehow, church, in some way that you and I cannot see right now. God takes our suffering and he takes our weakness and he takes our trouble and he transforms it into something that staggers our imagination. Nobody, nobody would look at the trouble that Paul had in his life. Nobody would call it light Nobody would call it momentary. And even Paul didn't all of the time. Just remember, in this very letter, he said there was a time where his suffering felt like the sentence of death. There was a time where all of the trouble and all of the weakness in his life made him despair of life. The point that he's making is that as horrible as that was, and it was for sure horrible, it will feel and seem like nothing when God finally finishes his work in him. Because then there will be this eternal tonnage of glory that is coming down on him and bearing down on him. Then Paul will know God fully and be fully known by him. He will be the Paul that he was always meant to be, not despite his suffering, but somehow through and by his suffering. And church, that reality is the same for you and me. That is how it works in the Christian life. It is how it works when we follow Jesus in faith. And it is just as true and it is just as real as that leak was behind my wall. We can't see it. We can't see it yet. But that does not make it any less real. And it does not make it any less consequential and meaningful in our lives. We will be the women and men that we were meant to be. We will know God, and we will know him fully and be fully known by him, not in spite of our suffering, but through and by our suffering. And this is true. It's absolutely true. 
And so we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The seen things are transient, they're travelers in our lives. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But the unseen things are eternal and we have been made for them. And training ourselves and reorienting ourselves to see, to look past the end of our noses to the things that are unseen, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. The kind of hope that helps us not lose heart as we give ourselves for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, help us um, to be able to see. It's so beautiful and so mysterious that you call us to see things that we cannot see, the unseen things, not, not fantasy things, not pretend things, but real things, real true things. So help us to be able to see the life of resurrection that happens all around us, the life of resurrection that happens in our own lives as we are slowly changed into the people that we were always meant to be. Help us to see that you use our suffering and you use our trouble to work glory in us. You use it for us. Father, that may be the hardest thing of all for us to see, and so we need you to show us again where to look and help us to believe. Father, do this so that we will grow up and mature in our faith. Do this so that through us you can love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.